Hello and welcome to Dialogos with me, Will Mill, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. On today's episode, we are joined by the master of political documentary making, Michael Cockrell, whose reporting and documentaries over a 50-year career for the BBC have brought viewers into the political minds and institutions that have governed our country. He has interviewed a dozen prime ministers from Macmillan onwards, as well as making profiles of some of the most impactful politicians on British politics, from Enoch Powell to Alan Clark. It is an absolute honour to be joined by Michael today, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for asking me, William. Thank you. Uh, having, having heard that, I can't uh, wait to hear I'm gonna, what I'm going to say. It's <laughs> a, a, a wonderful obituary. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, Michael, in your book, your latest book on unmasking, unmasking our leaders, which uh, tells the story of your career um, over the decades and therefore a lot of British politics over the decades, um, it's filled with anecdotes and your earliest anecdote I believe is from your first week at Oxford um, in 1959, uh, when Harold Macmillan gave a speech to the Oxford Union. What sort of what did he say in that speech, and how did that impact you on the career you took? Yeah, it was. Um, I was just turned 19. It was 1959, um, and Harold Macmillan, uh, the Tory Prime Minister, had just won a, a landslide of over a uh, hundred. Uh, seat victory um and he he was called super mac um he he was at the height of his his powers really um uh he he famously said um, most people in this country have never had it so good and there there'd there been a boom right the way up to to the election um and um my very first week at Oxford, I'd been to a, um, a, a London grammar school when I got into Oxford. Um, uh, Harold Macmillan came and spoke to the, the famous Oxford Union, where he had uh, he had spoken himself before the, the First World War. And he talked very movingly about um, the First World War because all the people who were at um, his college, Balliol, with him, um, and who were doing classics with him, a, a class of 50, um, all bar one or two, were killed in the First World War. And he talked about being in the trenches in the First World War and how awful it was. Um, and um, he, from that day on, he, he always had a, had a sense of um, not just the, the, the sort of upper middle class um, background he came from and he married a, was to go on to marry a duke's daughter. Um, um, he had a sense of uh, the lives of ordinary people. So he, you know, he was a, he was a, a, a um, not, not, a, not a paternalist, but a, someone who understood how the other half lived. Perfect. Um, was he the first uh, prime minister you interviewed? Um, uh, well, he was. It so happened. Little did I know, um, at the age of nineteen, that, that at the age of twenty-nine, I would um, be marrying his granddaughter. Oh, and, wow. uh, I, I got to know him, <laughs> Harold Macmillan, quite well, and we, uh, we would sometimes, uh, my my wife and I would sometimes take him out to to dinner um, in a London restaurant. Um, we enjoyed watching as uh, the other diners were there, um, seeing him walk in. One of the things was he lived, uh, 
he had a big house um, in the country in Sussex, um, and he still um, travelled uh, on the, the past that he had for, for being a director of the un-nationalised uh, railways before the war, and he, he quite liked um, being able to travel for free in, in first class to coming up to, to London for dinner. And um, I gather at this time, so just the early 50s, um, well, a bit before, obviously, when you were Oxford, uh, television was becoming more and more important and the whole idea of a political image. So, um, yeah, it was some people didn't really take to it initially, like Winston Churchill. Could you maybe like speak about how how television gained a place within British politics and, uh, you know, how was it was it a quick process or a slow process yeah man that's a very good question um because we hadn't had television um in in this country for politics really po- po- uh, television had started in 1936 but it it had been suspended during the war because they were afraid that the 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 broadcasting stations um would give uh, hitler's bombers uh uh, uh uh, if 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 they were broadcasting, it would it would they would act as signposts for Hitler's bombers. So the transmitters were all turned off during the war, and television came back in 1946. Um, and Winston Churchill, who'd been famously um, uh, prime minister during the war but lost the election in 1945, hated television. He thought it was a tuppenny a tuppenny halfpenny Punch and Judy show that uh, could never have any influence on politics. And um, television was, was, a lot of people called it just the idiot's lantern. Uh, and a number of uh, leading politicians uh, shared Winston Churchill's view of television. Um, but in 1953, when uh, Queen Elizabeth II was, uh, had her coronation, um, she decided that she wanted it to be seen on television. And suddenly, overnight, the, the set, sales of, of TV sets doubled and, um, and it kept on doing it. And um, Macmillan himself saw, uh, sorry, um, and Churchill himself saw that, that uh, this was a, a medium where you could speak to millions of people at a time instead of... Um, making a speech in the, in the commons or in the, in the country. Um, and he decided to have his own secret screen test, TV screen test made. Um, and it was made by his broadcasting officer. Um, and um, when, when she showed it to Macmillan, um, he wanted her, uh, sorry, and when, when, when she showed it to Winston Churchill, um, he wanted it destroyed. He was, you know, he was an old man of eighty by then, um, and I think he didn't like seeing himself on television. In fact, um, he he came over very well, I thought, on television, because we managed to to persuade this broadcasting officer. She had kept the the the, the TV screen test under her bed for thirty years, and she gave me the keys to her house so that I could um, go and um, find the, this. Um, she was in hospital. Um, uh, this this box uh, treasure tin of um, the, the the 
the, the, the filmed screen test. And in it, Churchill said, I'm sorry to have to descend to this level, but we all have to keep pace with modern inventions. And I have therefore agreed to have this, this thing done with me uh, for this new invention that they call TV. And he said it in such a way it sounded almost like a, a, a transmittable sexual disease. Um, and he said, and only one person will, will see this. I am that person. That, that, was all, that was all. But she kept it under her bed, thinking it was a, a historic document. And um, let us use it in, a, in a, a film I made about prime ministers and television. But it was, it was interesting that Churchill, who never then ever appeared on, on television, never did a, a TV interview, but Harold Macmillan, um, who was something of an actor-manager himself, uh, took to television and um, uh, became rather good at it, having uh, thought not much of it at first, and it had helped win him uh, the 1959 uh, general election. Oh, I see. Um, so you mentioned archive footage, or just yeah. that, how is that tricky to use in your all your profiles and all your documentaries um, on a on a sort of legal level? Have you run into any issues? Um, did you say a uh, a legal on a legal level? Have there been any issues maybe with using archive footage, or is it hard to use it, or is that open just for general use? Um, it depends. Uh, I, I do like, uh, in, when I make uh, films and um, um, profiles of politicians and of prime ministers, um, it's normally a mix of about two or three things. One is um, long interviews with the, the person I'm making the, the film about, where I will normally take him or her back to back to where they went to back to where they were born back to where they were brought up back to where they went to school or, or university or to their first job and so on um, because that opens them up i think when they go to these places um, and then i um, try and film them as much behind the scenes as i can get fresh filming of them doing what they do um, get access um, but also i go through all the footage that they that I can get hold of of their political life and before they even became politicians um, and use that and I often use the device of showing them this footage a lot of which they'd never seen before because many politicians have strong views about television but certainly in the old days when there weren't such things as DVDs or, or iPlayer or anything like that they'd never seen their, 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 their own broadcasts and sometimes you would show them their broadcasts and uh, they would get fascinated by looking uh, at themselves as a young man, a young woman, and, and sort of their brain was thinking. I remember Jim, Jim Callaghan, who became, um, became prime minister, he, he, he saw some footage of him when he'd been a very, very junior minister in uh, the 1940s. Um, he said, what a promising young man. I wonder whatever happened to him. <laughs> and uh, when I did a film with, with Ken Clark, uh, the, the former uh, Tory Chancellor, um, 
and many other things as well. Um, and he said, how do you want me to play this? I said, well, we'll be showing you footage, uh, uh, a lot of which you may never have seen, and some when you were a very young barrister before you became an MP. Uh, and I just want you to look at it and, and, and act naturally as you see it. And he said, you mean you want me to sit here and shout at the television like I do at home? <laughs> I said, that's about it, yeah. Yeah. I think my one of the most striking, or I don't know, funny moments was when Alan Clark, he hadn't seen the footage of his wedding um, and you showed that to him, I believe. That's correct, yeah, yeah. Um, Alan Clark was this extraordinary figure. He was, he never became a cabinet minister much as he would have liked to. He was in, in um, Mrs. Thatcher's uh, government and he had, a, he, he, he sort of um, had a crush on her really um, and uh, loved watching her um, when she was uh, at um, Prime Minister's Question. He, he, was, he was an outrageous figure, very right wing, lived in a castle, Rather good historian, very good historian of, of, of the First World War, a very good um, sort of black sense of humour. And um, he was he was the, the son uh, of, of um, a very famous um, art critic um, called Sir Kenneth Clark, nothing to do with Ken Clark, um, and um, who was very famous and was one of the first... Um, TV presenters of, of cultural programs. And so when Alan Clark, uh, the 29 year old Alan Clark was marrying uh, his 16 year, year old bride, the, the news cameras were there. And I showed, I showed Alan Clark that this footage and he was astonished that it even existed. Um, and he said, look at that, look at that beautiful Jane. What a wonderful, pretty girl um, whose life has been wasted with an old scoundrel like me. Uh, and she, Jane Clark um, told uh, many good stories about what it was like um, being married to, to Alan Clark. Um, I remember we, we were in uh, the grounds of the castle um, filming with Jane and um, he had um, uh, he kept peacocks in his gardens and she was feeding the peacocks and um, she said oh well you know that the peacocks are, are, are upper-class vandals um, uh, they Alan has these collection of vintage cars which he keeps highly polished and the peacocks see the reflections and their their tail feathers in the car, and they think it's a rival, so they fly at the cars. So all our cars, she said, are, are covered with blood and feathers. And she said, I, I, I make a joke about it. I just say that, that, that we um, uh, cycled our way through. We've, we've driven, we, I make a joke about it. I, uh, when people ask about the blood and feathers, I say, oh, just we, we drove through a charity cycle race. So she had a, a very black sense of humour herself. And um, she did say um, that, that um, I, I love and I hate him. I remember once I, I got so angry with, with, with Alan that I picked up an axe and threw it at him. And as it was whirling, whirling through the air, I hoped it would 
cleave his skull in two. Um, but it missed, and I was obscurely pleased it had missed. Yeah. He is an SH1T, she said, but but I still love him. Um, you, you, your techniques clearly worked. Um, I want to speak about Ted Heath because <laughs> he, he was probably the he was extremely private about mm. personal life, but you managed to get glimpses into yes. personal life, and I don't think. I think there was one person in the book who was a lifelong friend of Ted Heath mm. said that oh, I haven't got as much out of Ted Heath as you have just then. So how speak about Ted Heath and how you managed to get little glimpses into Yes. Uh, I mean, Ted Heath was, was prime minister from 1970, conservative prime minister from 1970 to 1974. And he, he never married. He, he was... He was a famously grumpy man, and uh, he lived a, a rather enclosed life, and everyone was wanting to find out what there really was uh, behind this this sort of rather grumpy exterior. The, the guy you were talking about, who had been one of his closest friends through, throughout his life, and I said to him afterwards when we made the film, um, I found it very difficult to get anything personal out of him. And he said to me, well, you got more out of him in your 50-minute film than I've got out of him as his friend for 50 years. So that was that. I think he, he just didn't want to talk about, about, personal, about personal matters. Um, he never married. And um, he, we took him back to Broadstairs, where he was um, born and brought up. And I remember he was in a, a totally different mood when he arrived in Broadstairs. So instead of being grumpy, he got out of the car and um, said, smell that air, best air in the world. And he was relaxed. And we, I talked about his boyhood and he talked, and he talked very movingly um, about his mother, who he greatly loved. Um, and he talked for the first and only time about the girlfriend he had um, during the the doctor's daughter uh, joined the the uh, just before the Second World War, just as he was growing uh, into manhood, um, and then he he uh, went off and fought um, uh, gallantly in, in the Second World War, and um, it, it was expected after the after the Second World War he would marry um, this lady who had been his girlfriend before the war. Um, and um, he never did, and I asked him why, and he said, well, because um, she married someone else. Mm. I said, but it's said that, that, that you kept uh, a picture of her on your desk uh, for many years afterwards. Yes. Did you? Yes. And they just, it was monosyllables, you just, but you saw him um, looking at the picture and it was very powerful. He, 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 he could be very, very difficult, um, he could be very difficult to interview, um, but he s sort of had a, a sense of humour about it. I remember once as uh, I sat down to interview Ted Heath, he said, um, I was I was thinking about this. He spoke in this funny voice. Uh, I was thinking about 
about you um, on the way here. Do you have any training for this? I say no. Uh, I don't do any homework. I don't talk to anyone. Uh, I don't read any speeches or um, look at uh, anything that you've written or anything like that. He said, oh, that would account for it. I mean, of course, it was entirely the opposite of what I do. I, I read everything and talk to as many people as I can and watch all the films that they've been in and read any of the books and articles that they've written and, and their speeches. Um, and another time he said to me, do you have the usual list of boring questions? I said, yeah, I'm afraid I have. Um, and after the interview was over, I said, did you think the questions were as boring as usual? And he said, oh, yes, but infinitely more irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I told this to his, his private secretary who said, if, he, um, if he's rude about you, if he's rude to you, it means he likes you. So he was a, he was a complex figure. Yeah. Well, another complex figure who you uh, interviewed numerous times over your 11 year, uh, over her 11 year premiership was Margaret Thatcher. Yes. Um, what was your relationship like with her? And um, how did that change? And how did you see her evolve? through that period, or did she stay the same? Ah, how long have we got? <laughs> but uh, I did know her for, for a very long time. I, I kind of spotted her early. Um, yeah. And um, uh, we had a, a sort of love-hate relationship. I loved her and she hated me. No, it wasn't exactly that. But <laughs> sometimes we got on very well, and sometimes we didn't, and she could be very prickly. Um, she was she was interesting in terms of uh, interviewing her and um, how she made use of um, television. Uh, she was really one of the first um, British prime ministers to to make good use of television in um, party political broadcasts in, uh, at general elections and in the big interview that she would do. Um, I was on Panorama. The, the great uh, Sir Robin Day was was the interviewer for for the big set piece interviews and she, mrs thatcher sort of learned various things about how to be on television she had a a, a spin doctor who had, had worked in advertising and television called gordon reese who she uh, subsequently knighted um, because he told her a lot about about television she he said that she had to change her hairstyle she had to to do something about her voice. Her voice was thought, thought to be too high-pitched and off-putting. And uh, he arranged for her to go to the uh, National Theatre to have uh, lessons on how to bring down the pitch of her voice. Um, because um, she used to speak from the front of her mouth. Um, and she was told by the voice coach in the, in the National Theatre she had to speak much more from from the back of her throat, so she was she was uh, given a word that she should repeat a hundred times every day to bring down the pitch of her voice, and that word was ngokoka ngokoka. You try saying ngokoka from the front of your mouth, ngokoka wouldn't work. Um, and she and um, uh, she her voice um, came down. Uh, at least an octave, I think, um, and she was the, the 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 
the press and the media noticed it and talked about her, what they call her sexy new voice. And during the 1979 general election, I was filming her, making a film about her during that election. And um, I said to her, I've been following you during this election, Mrs. Thatcher, um, and there sometimes seem to me to be two Mrs. Thatchers. One is the one who's doing these walkabouts in the town square and um, going to, to visit factories and, and talking to the people working there, endlessly interested in the minutiae of their lives. And the other is the Mrs. Thatcher with the, with, with the, the passionate rhetoric on the platform. Uh, how many Mrs. Thatchers are there? And she said to me in her new sexy voice, she said, oh, three at least. I said, really, what are the three? She said, there's the intellectual one, there's the intuitive one, and there's the one at home. And she said it in such a, a, a sort of beguiling way that Robin Day, who was the great interviewer, who was watching this interviewer go out, said it in the studio to the people in the studio, not to the public. Um, the untold story of the election campaign, Margaret Thatcher is having an affair with Michael Cockrell. Hmm. Um, also, um, in sort of, uh, on the subject of her flirtiness, um, I can't remember if it was in the book or elsewhere, but I heard that when you'd interview her, she'd, she'd the way she'd approach you, she'd run her... Um, hands down your tie or something of the sort? Yeah, Very I was, it was, yeah, when you'd go to number 10 to, to do an interview with her, it was, it was quite sort of, it's interestingly intimidating when you go to number 10 to interview the, the, the Prime Minister of the day in number 10, because yeah. you're going into their house to ask them nasty questions. And um, uh, I remember going in to, to see Mrs Thatcher and wearing my best suit and my best silk tie. And she got hold of the tie and her hand went right the way down the tie. She said, what a lovely tie. What a lovely tie. And then we had to sit down and I had to start asking her nasty questions. And I remember once after one interview, um, she, uh, I said something to, to her and um, she said uh, exactly the opposite of... of um, what I thought was the truth. So I said, you know perfectly well what I'm saying, Mrs. Thatcher. Um, and she said, there, there, don't get so upset. I was the one being asked the nasty questions, not you. And the whole camera crew fell about. There's nothing they like more than hearing the interviewer sort of <laughs> brought down by the interviewee. Hmm. Um, fast forwarding, forwarding uh, to New Labour and Tony Blair, yeah. I watched... I watched, I think it was a three-part series on yes. on Tony Blair and Gordon. Oh, no, only, only, Tony, only Tony Blair. Yeah, there were there were two two different series. Yeah. One um, was one which included a, a film about um, Blair and, and Gordon Brown. Mm. Uh, and uh, the other series was just, uh, just before he left office, which was called Blair, The Inside Story. Yeah. Um, so... Having watched the Inside Story, um, I mean, sort of interested. Um, when I think of spin and image, I, th I, I, I just think of Alistair Campbell automatically. Um, so, how did that? How did it work with you recording a documentary with the whole spin machine at Ten Downing Street? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's 
Sorry, go on. Was it complicated? Um, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I spent about six years wooing um, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, his spin doctor, um, from the time in, in, in 1995 um, uh, that he became uh, Labour leader to 97 when he won the election to, to um, uh, the year 2000. Um, and uh, I said I wanted to film Inside Number 10 and um, to film uh, how the Labour spin machine worked, although I didn't call it a spin machine, how uh, uh, Labour uh, dealt with the, 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 the media. And um, eventually they let me in, partly because the, the Tories were making such hay, uh, sort of making uh, a success of, of saying that, that the Labour, New Labour was just spin, in the same way as uh, New Labour had managed to, to um, blame the Tories for sleaze. Spin was, uh, for the Tories, um, Labour's sleaze. And um, Blair and Campbell decided that if we could show from inside number 10 how they managed the news, but not managed the news in terms of manipulation, but, but in terms of all the stuff that any government has to get out into the public, you can't have sort of three big stories uh, on the same day, all that, that sort of thing. Um, and also the the battle that went on all the time and has gone on all my lifetime between the media and uh, the politicians, um, how it was fought, and especially how it was fought with the political journalists, um, especially those ones in in Parliament known as the, the lobby, the the lobby journalists who have special access in Parliament and access to the Prime Minister's. Um, press secretary every day um, who uh, would give them off the record um, briefings, off the record in the sense they they were allowed to use the phrase sources close to the prime minister or one high official said, but you could never identify the, the person who who was um, doing the spinning, giving the, the, the giving them the, 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 the line uh, which the number 10 wanted them to take. Uh, and we managed to film behind the scenes of these secret, uh, as they were, secret lobby briefings, both in number 10 and, um, and in uh, the House of Commons. And you've got a pretty strong picture of um, the relationship um, between which was... Uh, often uh, very, very uh, sort of ill-tempered between uh, the media and, and the politicians. And um, Alistair Campbell was the one uh, we, we followed in right the way through um, the, our, our three or four months filming uh, in Number 10. And in the end, he, he, um, he thought, that it was a fair picture, but um, I hadn't made uh, the, the journalists cynical enough. I said, was, I showed it as a picture, a fair picture. I'm glad you think, think it was. Yeah. 
Um, just quickly before we end, I want to bring it up to the present day and to think about, are there any politicians out there that you would do profiles on nowadays or are they more boring nowadays? <laughs> because when I, look at, when I look at the personalities that you've interviewed, and I don't know if this is just um, a weird nostalgia, I, I know I wasn't alive, but um, but are, are they more hollow these days and, and do they have less personality politicians and therefore would your job be hard or is that a lie? Am I misrepresenting politicians? You're a very young man, if I may say so, and uh, but you've got the, the memory failure of um, uh, a very old man because uh, we had only less than a year ago a chap you probably so apart from Boris Johnson, Boris Alexander, I was thinking of Fefel Johnson, but that's but that's what makes him so spectacular. It was because everyone else seemed so bland, maybe. I, always, I think that's that's a very good point. Yeah, sorry, I, he, he I did, missed the elephant uh, in the room there. <laughs> the elephant in the room is exactly what Boris is, and he, yeah. he is still the elephant in the room. He's been the elephant in the room um, all his life. I've mm. uh, I've known him since he was a very young man, uh, and I played cricket with him. I played tennis against him. Playing tennis against Boris is 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 like playing. With a gorilla, with his racket, mm -hmm. his weird racket. Yeah, he, he had this this this, this strange uh, warped racket, wooden racket, not <laughs> not a new high tech one, which looked as if it would have been kept behind the radiator since Fred Perry won Wimbledon in the nineteen thirties. Um, and it had the advantage that because it was so warped, when he hit the ball, um, it would go in uh, an unpredictable direction, rather like Boris himself, and. He would jump up and, and say, mine, mine, and crash it down. And I, when uh, later on, when I was making a film about him, um, and uh, he got me to stand in because uh, his brother had to go. Um, uh, and he said, I'm very worried about this film, Michael. I said, I said, why are you worried, Boris? He said, um, well, I kept trying to, you were playing at the net, and I kept trying to hit it straight at you to knock your head off and you somehow kept getting it back and then if i'm not careful you'll make it look as if you're a better tennis player than me i said perish the thought boris but he 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 was um for television people the media um journalists britain journalists press journalists um he, he was the gift that went on giving for mm. a very long time and is still doing it yeah. Even if there's a lot of uh, elephant mess uh, involved as well from the elephant in the room. Yeah. Would Would Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak live up to your standard and, and be as one? I remember everyone says there's one one newspaper says you haven't made it in politics until you've been cockroached. Will <laughs> will, um, will Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak receive that treatment? Yes, I'm, I'm holding off both of them at the, the moment. There will be a time to do it. Um, uh, whether, they, whether they'll want to do it is, is, is another matter. Yeah. But what I do like to do in, in making um, these programs is to get behind the, the scenes and, and dig deeper in, in to, to their... The, the way they see things and, and their ideology and, and who they really are. I remember once the famous Peter Mandelson, one of the um, 
players, spin doctors, mm. um, uh, glid up to me in, the, in the, our party, he, whatever past tense of glide is. He, he comes into a room, you don't know he's there, and then he's on your shoulder, and he said, you do the most important thing you can do for a politician, Michael. I said, what's that, Peter? He said, you make them appear human, wow. and then glid away. Um, just as I was, might have said, might be difficult with you, Peter, because he's known as the Prince of Darkness. But mm. that was a sort of kind of spin doctor's take. You make them appear human. I mm. try to bring out the human side in, in our political leaders through, through using some of the techniques that we've talked about. Well, I think your career has definitely achieved that. So um, it's been a massive honour to have you on the podcast. And um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And um Best of luck with future projects, um, profi- maybe profiling some future, uh, in the future, some politicians. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode four of Dialogos with the BBC's most established political documentary maker, Michael Cockrell. If you enjoyed the episode, follow the podcast for more interviews with more fascinating people and feel free to give it a rating. Thanks. Thanks.